I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, we are talking about COVID-19 testing, the vaccines, vaccine shortages, and the virus variants. We've brought in an expert, Feng Zhang, one of the founders of CRISPR and a McGovern investigator and professor in MIT's Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences and Biological Engineering. He's also a core member of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. He joined MIT and the Broad in 2011. He did his undergraduate work in chemistry and physics at Harvard, and then did his PhD in chemistry at Stanford University. He's also a founder of companies including Editas Medicine, Beam Therapeutics, and the public company Arbor Biotechnologies. He's a trustee of the nonprofit organizations Society for Science and the Public and the Center for Excellence in Education. I met Fong as our foundation went deep into understanding COVID-19 testing and feel very lucky to have time with him today and to be able to share this conversation with you. So it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you very much. In my introduction about you, I talked about how you are one of the founders of CRISPR. Um, but in saying that to people, since I've met you, I, I realized how many people don't know what CRISPR is. And so I'm wondering if you and I and I my guess is we're we're about to see conversations about CRISPR become more mainstream uh, over mm -hmm. the next decade, probably less uh -huh. than that. But can you can you talk about what CRISPR is and, and why it's important? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, Absolutely. So CRISPR um, is a, uh, so CRISPR um, is two things. Uh, number one is a natural microbial immune system that bacteria use to fight against viruses, just like um, we have an immune system to fight against COVID-19. Um, but some of the components, the machineries that bacteria use to uh, carry out this immunity um, have been harnessed to develop uh, as tools uh, for uh, either editing DNA in human cells uh, or for diagnosing uh, virus infections or bacterial infections. And so CRISPR, uh, sometimes people are referring to uh, the natural microbial system, the biology of it, and sometimes mm -hmm. people are referring to the gene editing system. And uh, what we have been working on has been to um, study these microbial uh, biological processes and then and then see what, what aspect of this can we harness and turn into useful uh, tools for improving human health. And when you say that, we're talking about working on humans at the cellular level. So, so mm -hmm. understanding if something's going wrong inside the human body, right. and, and if so, what's the underlying mechanism? Right. I imagine you have to get all the way to that before you can say, okay, and then therefore the cellular repair is uh -huh. X, Y, or Z. Right. Well, so and, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, so so um, so I mean, we, we are living in a super exciting age in biology right now. Uh, there's yeah. a confluence of technologies that are making our ability to study and to understand and to uh, imagine uh, treatments for diseases um, ever more uh, powerful. And so I think one of the key things that has happened. Um, uh, in the past couple of decades has been the advancements in DNA sequencing. Um, you know, we, we um, have work composed of many cells and each cell has a genome uh, inside. And it's that genome, um, that's what people call the blueprint for life. Uh, it encodes uh, the information for making up um, our cells and, and allowing our, um, ourselves to develop from a single cell all the way to a 
adult human being. And by sequencing the DNA and mapping every letter of this DNA, there are 3 billion letters in the genome, um, scientists have been able to start to compare the genetic makeup um, between different individuals. And one type of analysis, analysis that people do is they take uh, groups of individuals who are affected by say a specific disease like uh, diabetes or affected by uh, cardiovascular disease. And then they compare with the genetic makeup of people who um, have a family history of, of healthy um, being not being affected by these diff different conditions. These comparisons allow scientists to start to identify specific differences that may be involved in uh, contributing to that difference uh, in our health. And it's these differences that uh, CRISPR is starting to, um, I guess, uh, enable scientists to begin to um, think about developing cures, uh, to be able to go into our DNA, uh, find those differences, um, and especially those ones that we know cause the disease and be able to reverse it, um, restore that back to um, a genetic uh, information that doesn't cause the disease. So, so this is very exciting and, uh, and we're still in the beginning stages of it, um, but um, people are starting to, to see promise. Um, there are uh, a set of diseases that are called monogenic genetic diseases. Um, monogenic means single, single gene. And so what mm -hmm. this means is that if you look at the human, uh, uh, if you look at the genomes of patients who are affected by these diseases like sickle cell disease, um, there's a specific mutation, just a single letter change sometimes um, that uh, is what's you know, causing someone to have sickle cell versus not. And uh, using CRISPR, uh, scientists are uh, starting to uh, conduct clinical studies where they use CRISPR to fix the cells um, and restore that single letter. Um, and, uh, and that's starting to show promise. And, and, uh, and this just uh, is the beginning of, of, a, of a new approach to, to treating disease. And so if I, if, I, if I understand it correctly, because we understand the makeup, the DNA makeup of a cell, mm -hmm. there's, there's a language basically that we can use to, if a cell is using the wrong language or the wrong letters or the wrong, right. I'm trying to think about how, you know, one time I thought I saw you talking, I was watching videos of you the other day mm -hmm. and um, you were taught, you're trying to explain CRISPR. And uh -huh. so you use this a notion of um, the sentence being incorrect. And so being able to go in and delete a word and replace right. it with a new word. Right. And, and I, um, and I try to get my head wrapped around the notion that, that cells have a language as well that we've now figured out how to cut and replace. Is that like in a very simple form? Is that right. what CRISPR allows us to do? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, not, not to be, be too um, sort of philosophical about it, but cells do have a language and the genome is the book of life. And, mm -hmm. um, and the genome has 3 billion letters and uh, is composed of uh, different uh, segments of letters that um, tell the cells to do different things. Um, you know, in our body, we have um, brain cells, we have skin cells, we have muscle cells, um, and these different cells all are coming from, uh, all are interpreted based on the same book. But it's just that they are uh, reading from different sections of this book, uh, so that they right. can become different cells. And um, and these genetic uh, disease-causing mutations are, in a way, a typo in that book. And right. um, and so. Um, gene editing um, 
is is you know the the idea of going into these cells and editing out these typos uh, to be able to restore uh, or or correct um, back to uh, what doesn't cause disease. So so I imagine we have to tread lightly because you're editing the system that makes us operate, but at the same time, it's probably why you start with diseases that have single cell mutations and that you, you can assume that if you just go switch shift that cell back to what is what you've discovered is normal, then the, yeah. it shouldn't impair any of the other cells around it. Right, so we certainly have to be humble uh, and, and be very careful about what we're trying to do. Um, and so far, um, what scientists are, are doing is they are learning from nature. Uh, they're comparing um, genomes that are from uh, patients and genomes from healthy individuals. And they are mm. simply reverting what is found in the patient's genome back to what they find in the healthy population. And so this is just going back to what nature has already uh, created and, and fixing it. Um, in the long run, there are a lot of ethical challenges that face um, us because uh, sometimes we want to run before we know how to walk. And, right. um, and so one of the biggest ethical issues has been this idea of editing the human germline and making designer babies and, and um, you know, making all these uh, things that you read in the science fiction books. But right. that would be going too far. Um, it, would be, right. um, it would have unpredictable consequences um, that are not only ethically challenging, but, but also just um, dangerous for, for the future of humanity. And, and those, yeah. um, the scientific community has really frowned upon and, um, and right now there are multiple um, uh, policy groups that are working actively to try to figure out how do we make sure that we are taking this uh, slowly and, and responsibly forward. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really incredible. Now you, in your lab, you have one of the things that you focused on, I'm assuming as COVID-19 was discovered mm -hmm. is um, how do we use a technology like CRISPR to diagnose, maybe cure. I, I don't. I don't know the other things that you're working on. Certainly, mm -hmm. you're, you've you've created technologies to help diagnose CRISPR. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about how, why, why use CRISPR to? I mean, there are already we're, mm -hmm. we already have ways to test. Uh, why, why? What does CRISPR do in the mix to to um, make testing even better? Right. Um, so that's a really good question. Um, so I think first of all. Uh, CRISPR uh, is not a single thing. Um, mm -hmm. CRISPR refer refers to this whole class of bacterial uh, immune systems. And so for different types of immune systems that fall into this CRISPR category, uh, they have different machineries. Some of these machineries uh, we have developed for gene editing. Um, you may have heard of a, um, a name called Cas9. Uh, this is one, yeah. one of those proteins. Uh, but then there are other CRISPR proteins called uh, Cas13 or Cas12. And they have uh, different properties uh, that allow them to um, be able to uh, recognize a fragment of, an, of a DNA or RNA signature, uh, a fragment of genetic information, and then be able to uh, activate a reporter uh, to give off a signal uh, to say that uh, I, found this, um, new uh, I found this genetic signature. And, mm -hmm. and these are the proteins um, that we have been working on to develop a diagnostic technology. So a few years ago, um, we collaborated with Jim Collins at MIT uh, to develop uh, a system called Sherlock. 
and um, and that system uses uh, Cas13 uh, as a uh, molecule to be able to uh, detect genetic signatures on viruses or bacteria uh, or even um, genetic mutations in our own genome, and then be able to report a signal. Hmm. The exciting aspect of um, these CRISPR-based diagnostics is that you can do them uh, without requiring very complicated instrumentation. Um, we, we have been hearing about testing uh, all over the news since the early part of last year. Uh, right. And it's very much being the news um, you know, the whole year. Um, what people have been mostly talking about is what they call PCR. And this is, um, is a genetic um, test that looks for a genetic signature in the COVID-19 virus. Uh, but it requires a machine called a PCR machine, um, which mm -hmm. can uh, cycle the temperature uh, from 55 Celsius to 75 cel to 72 Celsius to 98 Celsius, and then run that in cycles. Mm -hmm. That requires a complicated uh, instrument in the laboratory to run it. And, and that's why um, you have to uh, wait a little while to get a result. Sometimes uh, if there are, are not a lot of samples in the pipeline, you maybe get a result uh, next day. But if there's a backlog, you would have to wait several days to get a result back. Not, not only that, but it, the scale, scaling that testing mm -hmm. capability means you have to put more and more machines in and have more and more trained professionals. And so scaling those kinds of labs is complicated as well. Right, exactly. Absolutely. Expensive. Yeah. Um, so you have to set up automation. You have to um, be able to figure out how do you uh, keep track of every sample uh, if you're doing this at large scale uh, right. and to be able to report a uh, the result back accurately. Um, you don't give person A's information to person B and, and so forth. Right, right. Um, so, so these CRISPR-based reactions um, are, are simpler. They don't require uh, these kinds of complicated instrumentation. You can run them uh, at a single temperature and, um, and that way all you need is, is, a, is a, for example, uh, you can take a sous vide cooker uh, heat up a pot of water to a, a fixed uh, temperature and then put a reaction in there and then you can incubate for a while and then you get a readout. Um, and, um, and so, so we started to work on uh, turning uh, these CRISPR-based diagnostics uh, into a COVID um, uh, diagnostic uh, since the beginning part of the last year when, when I first learned about the COVID-19 uh, um, outbreak uh, coming out of Wuhan, China. And, uh, and since then we've been working on trying to make this, um, this test more sensitive and also uh, more cost-effective so that you can potentially run it at a very large scale uh, and to be able to get result back quickly. I, I'm curious what you think about this because I've, I've noticed in lots of conversations with individuals that you know, there are two kinds of mainstream tests in the market right now, Fong. There's antigen tests and there's PCR tests. People don't mm -hmm. seem to really understand the difference between the mm -hmm. two. And, and the, it also seems to me that there's kind of this notion that if, I, if I'm with you today and you're mm -hmm. diagnosed tomorrow and I take a test on mm -hmm. that same day mm -hmm. and I, I'm negative, then I'm negative without like understanding how mm -hmm. the virus develops in our system and that it takes a certain number of days for right. either one of these tests to pick up, right. the, the, it, which is probably also helping to drive the spread of the disease. And so, so being the accuracy piece of this is really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there, there are two things that people talk about in the diagnostics world. 
uh, one thing is called uh, sensitivity. Um, and that means um, that refers to how, how accurately can you pick out a virus when the virus is in a very low amount in the body. Right. Uh, and then the second thing they talk about is specificity, which means um, if you if the person has symptoms and it's um, it could be caused either by COVID or by flu or by RSV, uh, any number of different viruses, um, how confident are you that you are actually measuring for COVID rather than uh, also detecting flu at the same time? Right. Um, so those are the two things. And then um, and then the difference between um, a PCR-based test, which is molecular testing, uh, versus an antigen test, which looks for the virus, uh, has to do with the sensitivity. Uh, PCR or molecular testing um, detects the genetic information of the virus. And the way it does it is by first making many, many copies of the genetic information and then detecting it. And this allows mm. you to have much, much greater sensitivity because uh, even if there's only one virus, you can make you can make many copies, um, like ten thousand or hundred thousand copies, and then it's much easier to detect it. Right. Um, antigen tests, on the other hand, is detecting for proteins on the virus, and we don't have a technology to make many copies of the protein, and and because of that, uh, the sensitivity is is more poor. If there's only one virus, um, then there's not enough copies of the protein. Um, for the antigen test to be able to detect it. So that's kind of the difference between the two. Um, and so um, molecular testing is the, the gold standard uh, for detection right. because, because of that sensitivity. But and then, then using, yeah. using these detectives that you've created through CRISPR, it, does it get even more sensitive? Are they, able, are they mm -hmm. even more alert than, than a PCR process of replicating? Um, I think PCR is still the gold standard uh, and CRISPR okay. um, can be uh, pretty much on par with it. Um, okay. So CRISPR um, is also a molecular test. Uh, it just uses a, a different set of chemical reactions to make copies of the virus's genetic information. And then the part that, um, that is beneficial coming from CRISPR is that it makes the test more accurate uh, because mm. sometimes when you are making copies of the virus uh, genetic information, you could make a mistake and uh, copy something that uh, wasn't actually the virus. And, um, and if you put in CRISPR, then you can use CRISPR to double check to make sure that what you're copying is in fact the virus sequence, the virus genetic information. And, uh, and that makes the test much more accurate. Um, so um, the, the chemistry, the reactions that people use to make copies of virus, um, uh, at, at a single temperature without requiring a laboratory machine uh, is oftentimes prone to these uh, inaccurate copy. And, uh, right. and by combining those with CRISPR, that's how we're able to make something that is as sensitive and also as accurate uh, as the laboratory-based uh, PCR test. And then it becomes very valuable because you can effectively have a lab in your home or your school or your company mm -hmm. and without all of the machines and, and um, expertise that are required inside the lab. The, the, the vision really is to, to have a very low cost um, testing apparatus that people can have uh, in any setting, whether it's home or school yeah. or, or in an underdeveloped um, uh, environment uh, and be able to run the test there and get a result uh, within, within the hour so that they can um, uh, make decisions about what to do next. 
So how much longer do you think we'll need testing? Like we have vaccines <laughs> now on the market. There are more that are in line to receive EUAs. And so what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, I think it's very hard to make these predictions because- Yeah, um, I know, but you're super smart and you're in the weeds. <laughs> so I figure you're better to make the prediction than me. Um, well, I, I think one of the, one of the biggest questions um, that- has been on all of, all of the researchers and, and um, doctors' mind it, since the beginning of the pandemic is, is this virus mutating? Is the virus mm. changing itself to be able to um, overcome the immunity that we develop against the virus? And recently, um, actually just in the past week, there's been more and more discussion uh, in, the, in the media about these new uh, variants, new mutants of the virus. Um, right. We hear, uh, we hear about this uh, uh, strain that was discovered in the, in the United Kingdom, uh, which led uh, to the UK uh, closing down um, uh, all of the transportation and also infrastructure. Uh, and then we mm -hmm. also heard about an, another strain coming from South Africa um, that, right. that is very quickly outcompeting the original COVID-19 virus to become the most prevalent virus uh, in, in that whole part of the world. Hmm. Um, the jury is still out um, and we don't have data yet um, to really understand if these new variants of the virus are escaping uh, either um, the antibody that our body develops uh, when someone has been infected with it um, or the antibody that a vaccine uh, is able to uh, elicit in the body uh, to fight against right. the viruses. So um, at least for now, um, given all of the challenges that we have been facing, um, uh, people are still going to need to test. Uh, and if these new strains um, escape uh, immunity, um, either uh, evade vac vaccination or evade antibody therapies, uh, then we have to be able to test for these new viruses um, and, and keep them under control. Um, so I think it, um, infectious disease with viruses, and especially something that is rapidly changing, um, is a it's kind of a, a tug of war. Um, our body fights against it. It changes itself to be able to escape our uh, immunity. And then our body develops a second round of immunity to fight against it. But then the virus mm -hmm. changes again. So it's kind of a, a chase um, that, that we'll, we need to be very uh, careful about. Um, and, and this is an area where it's really important to act quickly and, and, um, and really put this um, infection spread uh, under control because every new infection uh, is a new opportunity for the virus to change itself. So right. every new person who is infected in that person's body, the virus can mutate and then become something different that can then um, infect even people who are already recovered from COVID-19. Um, and so this is why um, vaccination programs and, and masks and other uh, social distancing measures are, are so important uh, for us to be able to overcome this pandemic. So the two vaccines that are currently on the market in the United States, if I understand it correctly, the EUA suggests that they protect against severe symptoms and therefore mm -hmm. deaths and hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily prevent, we just don't know yet, I think, right? Like the, mm -hmm. da the data isn't completely there. We don't know if it, can, if, if it prevents an individual from actually contracting the disease. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that good enough to compete against the mutating virus? Well, I think, I think it's very important um, because yeah. um, what we know right now is that there are 
um, there's the original COVID-19 virus that's spreading, circulating the community. And then there are these new variants that are starting to make its way through the community as well. Um, what we need are any measure um, that can slow down the spread of this slow virus. Down. And, yeah. uh, and the vaccines can do that. And, 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 and therefore it's, it's a really critical tool uh, in our fight against the, the virus. Yeah, interesting. And how do you think about the mRNA vaccines that have already been, that are in the market from Pfizer and Moderna mm -hmm. as, compa as compared to the vaccines that are in the pipeline, like from J&J, &J, which mm -hmm. also might be a single dose vaccine or the AstraZeneca mm -hmm. vaccine, which I think just got approved in Mexico. Because mm -hmm. um, they're different, they're, right? They're, they, mm -hmm. they're not all using the same technologies and the first two are using a very new technology. Mm -hmm. the, the RNA vaccine, I think is, is, is super exciting. Uh, this is the first um, RNA vaccines that are being uh, deployed uh, and, and deployed on a, on a massive scale. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I think is in many ways, it's, it's extremely inspiring. Um, these vaccines were developed in less than a year. Um, yeah. And, uh, and if, if someone would ask me, um, you know, several years ago, uh, can you have a vaccine within a year or in less than a year? Is that possible? I would say this, this is, uh, you know, really, really only in your dreams. Um, mm. It's not, it's not going to be possible to do it so quickly. But these RNA vaccines show that the, the rapid advances in biotechnology, um, whether it's DNA or, or gene therapy or, or um, sequencing, um, these things have all come together. Uh, when the virus first were discovered at end of two, two, uh, 2019, um, mm -hmm. DNA sequencing technology was applied and within days, the virus sequence was made available to the scientific community. And then mm. based on that sequence, scientists were then able to start to develop a vaccine and synthesize RNA. And the mm -hmm. RNA synthesis technology that had been um, sort of developing uh, by many uh, scientists were then applied to it to, to make it possible to synthesize a large scale RNA. And then the, the lipid nanoparticle technologies uh, that were developed for uh, treating diseases, uh, gene therapy, were then applied to um, package these RNA to turn it into uh, vaccines that can be delivered into, into uh, patients. And, uh, and it's this confluence of advances in multiple fields um, that mm. merge together to really uh, bring out these um, sort of uh, really lightning speed or warp speed uh, vaccines. Uh, that, that, that is super, super exciting. Is it that the science community has found a way to collaborate around politics? Because you're talking about a very fluid system and mm -hmm. that doesn't appear to be what's happening on the political side of the world right now. And so <laughs> how, how do the, the, but it sounds like those two things may operate in different spectrums maybe. Well, this um, th this is not a, a instantaneous effort. This this is um, all of the things that I talked about really built on um, years, if not um, you know decades of work uh, mm -hmm. by, by many res researchers. And it's that accumulation of knowledge and the synthesis of that knowledge that really led to um, these very rapid development or rap rapid application uh, for for developing RNA vaccine. Um, yeah. But during this pandemic, what, what I have uh, witnessed really has also been one of the most collaborative times uh, that I have seen um, uh, as a scientist. Um, hmm. 
you know, back in, in March or since, since March, um, you can, scientists can, can connect with anybody and ev everyone was willing to pitch in and to uh, provide their expertise or, or resources uh, or whatnot to uh, work together to, to solve this problem. I think people understood that this is a problem that, that, that faces every single one of us. And, um, right. and so this, the, the better that we can work together, the sooner we can get out of the pandemic. I mean, it feels to me a little bit more like we're, you know, we're on a battlefield, probably a series of battlefields, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the frontline workers in, in medicine are on a different battlefield than the scientists mm -hmm. that you're talking about are, but, it, but it's all a battle to, to fight back at mm -hmm. this virus that seems to be very swift and, and smart. Mm -hmm. um, and, and do you think we're winning? Um, I, I think, I think we have, I think I, I am optimistic that we can win, um, okay. against this virus. Um, and, and that is because you see, you see, you, of course you're reading the news about things that are not happening as well as it should be. Um, mm. we, you're reading about setbacks, um, yeah. obstacles that people face, but there are also a lot of things that are going right. Um, a lot of things that are happening, um, not only on the scientific and, and vaccine development or testing front, but the healthcare workers, the, the people who are, who I walk down the street and, and are wearing masks um, and uh, mm -hmm. staying you know, apart from each other. It, this is gonna be a collaboration from everyone um, in the world um, together. Uh, and, and without um, these collaborations or cooperations, um, we're gonna, we're not gonna be able to be the virus, but, but I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we will. Yeah, I am too. Do you, do you have a point of view in terms of arming ourselves on this whole conversation that's happened over the past week or so about single dosing the Moderna and um, Pfizer mm -hmm. vaccines? Mm -hmm. um, I followed a little bit. Um, I think uh, the, the biggest, challenge we're faced with right now is that we couldn't, there, there aren't enough vaccines and, and it's hard to yeah. make um, many, many more uh, very quickly. Um, and um, there are some uh, really creative ideas that are being discussed. Um, for example, reducing the doses uh, using half instead of one, and that will immediately double the number of doses that are available. Um, and, uh, and some of these vaccines require two shots. So you have to take one shot and then wait three weeks and then get another shot. Um, and, and the UK has been talking about uh, only giving one shot instead of uh, giving two shots per person. So these are different ways uh, that can potentially uh, make more uh, vaccines available. But I think we need to see some data uh, to understand yeah. whether or not uh, these are gonna work. Um, if giving half the dose or giving one instead of two shots uh, does not provide the protection, then we, sh we, we shouldn't do it. Uh, it was simply waste the vaccine. Yeah, right. Now, can you just help me? Because looking back at the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. it, it it does. I don't really understand how it ended. Did it just did the did the did the did the mm -hmm. virus beat itself and just mutate mm -hmm. into something that? Because as I, if I understand it correctly, it's, it's mutated mm -hmm. into the common cold. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that we all still contract, pass around. Maybe it's not defeated in that it gets to live on, mm -hmm. but it, but we've, we've won in that it doesn't kill us. It is, 
uh-huh. I mean, is there, is there some hope in the science community that this, that's what's happening with this too, is it's getting more mm-hmm. contagious, but it doesn't appear to be getting more, um, Mm-hmm. It doesn't appear Definitely. to disadvantage humans. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very much the hope uh, is that this virus will, well, so, so the virus, the virus's objective is to replicate itself and spread it um, to as many places as it can. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, one reasonable way uh, to think is that, you know, in order for the virus to be um, spreading quickly, it has to be adapted it cannot harm its host too much because mm. if it's too deadly, it kills its host, then it's not going to be able to spread to other uh, hosts. Mm. Um, so, so in, in, in these kinds of, um, you know, host pathogen, host virus uh, warfare, um, the balance between lethality and, and virulence is, is very much an important um, factor. Um, what we have seen so far is that uh, even with these new strains, they don't seem to be increasing the mortality rate, uh, which right. hopefully that's um, ho- hopefully that holds, um, and, uh, and and we'll, we'll have to see. Um, in the case of the flu virus, uh, certainly the virus mutated and, and became a less virulent strain, and uh, right. and that um, that that's um, hopefully what happened here too. But the, I think we we will see have to wait to, to find out. Um, the other right. factor that happened is. Uh, there were so many people who were infected that the population achieved what people call herd immunity, which means that there are enough people uh, already immunized against the virus uh, that they don't spread to other people and the virus cannot spread quickly. And, uh, and we are, we're, soon, we're not there yet with COVID-19. Uh, the hope is that with vaccines, uh, we'll be able to um, have enough of a herd, herd immunity in order to prevent the further spread. Do we see that happening anywhere in the world? I was reading an article about how Brazil mm-hmm. potentially, they had models that showed that 79% of citizens in Brazil had already been, um, had infected. already contracted the disease, infected by the disease. Yeah, I, I mean, uh-huh. it, have, are we noticing that there are places or even in the US, I think about like Chelsea, Mass, just down the street where, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's been raging there since the beginning of March. Are there places where we're seeing herd immunity start to happen? Um, I'm, I'm not sure, um, yeah. but I, I think certainly in some communities where infection is very, very prevalent, it's possible there, there may be, but um, I think a lot of questions still need to be answered. Uh, can reinfection happen? Um, mm. If someone recovered, can they um, you know, contract the virus again, the same virus, uh, or, or uh, be infected by a new uh, strain. Uh, for example, mm. if someone uh, got the original COVID-19 virus, uh, and then can that person be reinfected by the UK strain or by the South African strain? Uh, these are questions that we don't have answers to yet. And, um, and, and also, um, as, as um, uh, these people are recovering from the COVID-19 virus, uh, how long does the virus persist? Is there a low mm. amount of virus that lingers down in the body of those people? If that's the case, they can potentially still spread it to others. And, um, and, and this is why even for people who have recovered from COVID-19, it's important to uh, wear masks and socially distance um, and, and do all this, take all the same precautions. Right. Do you, how do you feel about therapeutics in the fight against this virus? Are, are mm-hmm. we making advances there as well? I think there's a lot of interesting um, approaches. Uh, there are the small molecule drugs and then there are also 
the protein-based antibody drugs. Uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, um, for example, made by Regeneron, uh, is something that we, we have heard in the news. Uh, these are also things that, um, that are really important uh, as a part of our toolbox. Uh, but um, it's also important to, uh, to be vigilant um, and see, uh, are these monoclonal still, uh, still functional against new variants of the virus? Uh, mm. Because when the virus evolves, uh, one of the things you will want to do is to evade what our current toolbox already has to fight against it so that it can escape it. Um, right. And, uh, and if, um, if a person receives a monoclonal antibody, the virus in that person's body can mutate to try to escape it. Uh, and then if that virus gets out of that person and infects someone else, uh, then we'll have a new strain in the population that that uh, will not respond to the to the therapeutic. So yeah, so it's it's a it's a it's kind of a cat and mouse chase, but um, but hopefully by by really slowing down the spread, we can minimize the probability of this virus uh, mutating. You talk about slowing down the spread, and right now it seems to not be slowing down very much at all. And mm -hmm. so, is it complicated for scientists and researchers? to study these you know, very specific things when the, the virus is really raging or, or is this a better time to start to be able to kind of look at, can, can someone who was infected be reinfected? How quickly does um, this mutate? What kinds of mutations exist in the population? Is that, are those, mm -hmm. it's because it sounds like the UK has maybe um, a very structured way of studying some of those things that we don't have in the US and how mm -hmm. hard is it to kind of set up those sorts of infrastructures for research, and are we mm -hmm. doing it? Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much um, is happening in the in, in the various communities around our country. Um, what some countries have, uh, for example, in the UK, the reason the UK was able to find this new variant uh, is because they were sequencing, mm. um, they were mapping the genetic information of people who were infected, or they were mapping the genetic information of the viruses from their patients. Right. Why, why, would, why wouldn't that be a no-brainer for everyone to be doing? I mean, given that we can do it, it's not hard to do and it's not expensive to do, why wouldn't that just be kind of part of the protocol? It should be a no-brainer. Um, yeah. We should have, in the U.S., we should have a infectious disease surveillance network that uh, continuously monitors infections and uh, sequences um, the samples from these um, individuals who are manifesting symptoms to see um, are we... Uh, observing a new virus uh, and be able to clamp down as quickly as um, a new virus is, is detected. Um, that network, um, as far as I know, uh, we don't have anything like that, um, certainly not nationwide. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's because politicians don't understand the nature of this enemy, that they don't perceive viruses, whether they're man-made mm -hmm. or naturally made as mm -hmm. the enemies that they are and that they need to be we need to be able to detect them. We need to be able to understand them. We need to be understand the language that they speak. I mean, it just seems to me like mm -hmm. we're, we're missing a huge opportunity to protect ourselves. Um, I, I, think, I think there are probably many complicated factors uh, that are yeah. involved. Um, you know, one of the things is that um, the U.S. has a very distributed public health system. Um, mm. you know, different states have their own health departments. And then there's the CDC. Uh, but how, how all these different independent uh, health departments uh, coordinate, um, these are some of the things that um, I think probably play into the complication of setting up a nationwide system. Um, mm. 
so, uh, so I think I think it's not just that, but uh, probably multiple factors that that I, I don't even know about. Um, but hopefully, you know, once once as we are fighting the pandemic, we're learning things, and and hopefully um, the the policymakers will will take note and uh, and start to uh, develop something that is more robust uh, and can prevent future uh, viruses. We're certainly going to have uh, future pandemics. Um, especially as climate change becomes a bigger issue, um, you know, animals and habitats are getting disrupted. Some of these viruses uh, can cross into uh, human populations that come into contact with them, um, and uh, and that that can be a very devastating issue. So I think you know setting up these kinds of systems going forward is going to be really critical. Yeah, yeah. That 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 I think that that notion is too scary for lots of people to contemplate you know that mm-hmm. when the when this pandemic started there was a lot written about how there's a a pandemic you know kind of on average every 100 years mm-hmm. and so i think maybe it made people kind of take a deep breath and say okay well we'll make it through this one mm-hmm. not noticing how quickly some of the things that cause viruses like this mm-hmm. are are um dissolving around us and um, yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. Now, part of some of the things I've read about um, the work that's happening in the CRISPR community is, is actually work on the environment mm-hmm. and that they're using those technologies to protect against climate change. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's so interesting the other ways that this technology is being used. Um, so, I, I, I think uh, there are so so CRISPR um, as a gene editing tool um, is being yeah. used um, in a lot of different ways. People people use it to treat disease. This is what we hear about in the news a lot. Uh, but people also use it in agriculture uh, to be able to engineer crops um, by combining uh, beneficial genetic traits. Uh, for example, um, you can take uh, genetic uh, information that makes something uh, more drought resistant or more pest resistant or insect resistant, um, consume um, uh, you know, less of certain nutrients and put it into a crop so that it becomes a more robust, resilient uh, crop. And so there's mm. a lot of work like that that are happening that uh, scientists are um, trying to develop uh, crop species that can be uh, planted elsewhere that, uh, that are otherwise sort of uh, inhospitable. Um, and, then, um, and then hopefully that can help um, sort of contribute to, to the fight against the climate change uh, problems. Um, there are also a lot of ways that people are using um, CRISPR to just understand the underlying biology of systems and understand how they can uh, take what they learn and, and uh, engineer changes to the system to make it more, more robust to, to certain um, environmental changes. Um, so those are some of the things that people are, are using CRISPR. Uh, but but I, I think climate change is a much bigger problem uh, there are also mm-hmm. um, issues with energy consumption, and, and that's another area where um, CRISPR and, and many other technologies are being used to try to uh, maybe engineer better, um, uh, better biofuels, uh, things that are cheaper to produce and higher yield, um, mm-hmm. or to uh, sequester more carbon um, as they are growing. Um, so these are just some, some examples, but, but I, I wouldn't say CRISPR is playing a major role. Uh, it's, it's just... Uh, CRISPR is a part of a broad set of tools that people are using uh, to to develop new solutions. All right. 
And one of the things that we were talking about when we just to go back to testing um, was that now, now that you've invented this test, there are numerous ways to detect this virus. We're, we're sort of all getting used to the notion of testing for a virus, right? For the, for the enemy. It, do you think that will have um, positive ramifications for testing kind of broadly mm-hmm. for other things like the flu like mm-hmm. strap, like, I guess, you know, it just, it seems to me that now we're all, uh, now that we're all more aware of what mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. and detecting means that, yeah. that do you think that will actually be advantageous to us in, in prevention? Um, hopefully. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully after this, people will understand the value of diagnostics and, yeah. uh, and will, uh, will, will apply it in more places. Um, I haven't, um, and part of it is probably because I've been working from home for the past year, but I haven't had a code this year. And it's great to yeah. not have a code. And, uh, <laughs> and if there are ways that we can, um, you know, uh, monitor uh, infections in the community and, and be able to stop the spread of uh, even just the common cold virus, um, that, that yeah. would be a great thing. Yeah, it's so interesting. So what are, what are your predictions around this and what, what, or maybe not what are your predictions around this? What, what is this made you think about as a scientist who um, you know runs extraordinary and runs extraordinary labs and works with unbelievably smart mm-hmm. people? What what it, how has this made you think about the work that you want to do over the next five or ten years? Um, I, I I think there's a lot of work to do, and I I am um, you know I both both I'm grateful for grateful for all of the uh, you know incredible collaborators and colleagues that I get to work with. Uh, to to try to uh, contribute to solving these uh, problems that we're faced with, uh, but also I'm inspired by seeing what people can accomplish, and and yeah. um, inspired to do more. Um, you know, seeing the RNA vaccine getting developed in less than a year, um, that that is uh, that is very inspiring for for me as a scientist to to know that biology has come to a stage where it's becoming more and more of an engineering discipline. Uh, it's. Yeah. Uh, there is a principle behind what we can do and, and we can build on that principle to do things in a predictable way to program a biological um, system. Uh, that I think is, is, that's the future of medicine because uh, in the future, I think we're gonna be uh, developing uh, treatments or cures um, that are, are programmable um, based on what we know from the genetic information, um, based on what we know about the, the program that is happening inside of our cells uh, and to be able to uh, change it uh, in predictable uh, ways. That, that is, that is um, I think that's the future and that is super exciting that that's what we're working toward. That is so, so inspiring. And you, I know, got interested in um, the, what eventually turned into to your work um, and, and your studies at a pretty young age. What, how, and I'm mm-hmm. sure that this, this virus has strong implications for what our kids do and mm-hmm. think and how they grow up and, and look at the world. Um, but what would your advice be to kind of inspiring um, young, I, I think both mm-hmm. um, engineers and um, scientists in, mm. in terms of how, how they, what do they, what do they think about and do now to prepare them for their futures? Um, I think one of the things that I, I always try to do is I, I try to um, just ask questions about what are the important problems that need to be solved. Um, and um, I try to keep in my mind those problems. 
Um, and then every time I read about something or every time I have a discussion with someone, I kind of run that information that I'm discussing about against this list of questions to see, is it applicable to any of them? Does it um, you know, get me closer to a solution for any of them? And if it does, then, then you know, work on it, uh, think about it deeper uh, and, then, uh, and then see how far it can take you. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think um, you know, for, for young kids, you know, just read about the world, read about all the things that are happening, uh, read about the challenges that we face as, as a humanity uh, and see if any of those problems are interesting and then, um, and then keep it in mind. And, and maybe when you are brushing your teeth or when you are taking a walk outside, a new idea pops uh, into your mind or if you are having a conversation, something um, uh, conjures a new, new idea, then I think you explore it more. Yeah. Do you find that, that I, I, inspiration really comes from kind of out of the blue, doesn't it? It's not, it's not everywhere. It's not often yeah. where you're looking for it. It, it really does. It, it comes from uh, unexpected <laughs> places. When you're grocery shopping, maybe you're looking at some vegetable <laughs> and you think, why does this look this way? Um, and, and then an yeah. uh, idea can come to mind. Yeah, that's so great. Well, thank you for joining us. We're so lucky to be able to talk to, talk with you today and to be able to share this with our listeners. And um, thank you for everything you're doing in this crazy fight. Thank, thank you. And thank you for all your support. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Have a great day. Thank okay. you. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Fang Zhang. I'm in awe of his work, his mind, and of the scientists and medical professionals who are aggressively fighting this great fight against COVID-19. But we all have a role to play. And so with that, I will remind us all to wear a mask, stay six feet apart, and wash our hands. As you heard from Fong, our job is to slow this thing down. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.